Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Dan Puckett, who teaches at Troy University. Here to talk about his new book, In the Shadow of Hitler, Alabama's Jews, the Second World War, and the Holocaust, published in 2014 by the University of Alabama Press. Dan, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Well, thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. So, Dan, you originally set out to write a different book, uh, but you ended up writing this one. Can you tell us briefly about how that came about? Sure. Uh, the book I had intended to write uh, is, is the one I'm actually working on right now. Uh, it was looking at African-Americans' response to Nazism, to, to the rise of Hitler, uh, to the events going on, to World War II, and, and uh, the revelations of the Holocaust. And I was looking at how that affected uh, civil rights, their demands for civil rights. And I started this project when I was in graduate school at Mississippi State. And my advisor, when I was working on this, he, uh, uh, he asked me, he said, well, what are the Jews doing? Well, I don't know. And so I thought, well, I'll spend two weeks and get the Jewish perspective. And here it is, uh, years and years later, and, and I'm still, I'm, I'm working in this field now because it, it's so fascinating. Uh, it, it just, uh, it, it was supposed to be two chapters, uh, in a book. And I took a trip to New York. I was actually going up to the Schomburg Center for, uh, for Black Culture and History. I was planning on spending a week and a half in, uh, in Harlem up at the Schomburg. And there was a couple of collections I wanted to look at at the Center for Jewish History. And, and so I allocated maybe a day, day and a half. And, uh, I went there first just to get it out of the way. And I ended up spending the entire, t- well, except for a day that I spent at the Schomburg, I spent uh, the entire time at the Center for Jewish History. And I found more information on Alabama's Jews in New York than I found, well, in, in all of Alabama combined. It, it, mm-hmm. was, it was a treasure trove. So I came 
I came home with uh, probably two bankers boxes full of material. And the more I, the more I dug and the more I pulled at these little threads, the more information, the more questions came out. And it was pretty apparent that this warranted its own book instead of just, just a, a couple of chapters. And so that's, that's how it turned into this book. And this is really my, my overriding interest now is, is Jewish history. Mm-hmm. It's a very nice plug for the Center for Jewish History. And also, uh, you know, grad students out there, you know, be open to, be open to, to uh, you know, how things come at you. You never know. No, you, uh, so, you, so, you, you really don't know because I, I never would have thought that I would uh, be in, well, doing what I'm doing in this field now. And, you know, it, it's a fascinating field uh, to get into. So, Dan, what drew you to Alabama? Uh, you say that in many ways the response of Alabama's Jews to Hitler, you know, sort of mirrored American Jews' response throughout the United States. Um, so tell us a little bit about, about the similarity there, but in what ways was Alabama unique and worth telling separately? Well, it, the reason I got involved in Alabama is I'm an Alabamian. I grew up in Birmingham. And uh, Alabama is, if you look at the southern states, at least during uh, the 1920s, the 1930s, and 40s, uh, I thought it was a little bit different. It's, it, it has different aspects to it. It's, it's got really the, the industrial heart of the South in Birmingham, uh, really a new South city. Uh, a couple of hours down, uh, down the highway, you have really the, the, the old capital of the Confederacy, you know, the center of the Black Belt, the, the plantation region. Uh, in Mobile, just uh, south of that, it had, really has a Caribbean feel. So it, you know, there, there are really different regions within the state that, that are very different from one another. Uh, so I, I, that's how I got involved with Alabama is because I was, I'm from the state and, and, and the state's always fascinated me. Uh, you're asking about how the Alabama, how Alabama's Jews mirrored you know, one of the things that we often hear is that American Jews didn't do enough during uh, during the Holocaust to uh, to save, to rescue, to aid the persecuted Jews. And when I got into this, what I found is that that's not true at all, um, especially if you look beyond the national organizations uh, and, and taking a look at a local community. Uh, and, and there's a number of different communities in Alabama, but they came together and they did everything in their power uh, to to aid, to rescue uh, these persecuted uh, German Jews. And in a lot of ways, what their experience in Alabama, and it's not just their response to, to Hitler and the Holocaust, but it's I think it's their their entire um, experience in the South mirrors a lot of the experience of Jews in smaller towns, uh, smaller communities, uh, whether it's in the Midwest or the West. You know, oftentimes we, we like to look at New York, New York City, the Northeast, really where the bulk of, of American Jewry resides. But I think comparing small communities uh, such as in Alabama or Georgia or Mississippi or, or perhaps uh, in the Midwest or West to New York, that's not really a good comparison. 
So if you compare Jews in Alabama, let's say Birmingham, uh, to uh, a comparable city at the time, like uh, Indianapolis, for instance, I think you'll see a lot of the same uh, elements, the same things happening uh, there. And so what I'm finding in Alabama is is what I would like to see more of, uh, an examination of these these smaller communities, these smaller towns, how are they responding? So if, you know, and, and just looking at the national uh, uh, scope of things, the national organizations, uh, what's going on in New York really doesn't tell uh, the entire story. And I think it's a much different view from, uh, you know, from these smaller communities. Part of the story, uh, you know, maybe it's sort of a backstory, um, is that there are certain rifts in the Alabama Jewish community. Uh, can you tell us, you know, sort of what are, what are some of those fault lines? Well, that, that, was, that was a theme, really, that ran throughout the book, um, is, is, you know, there were really, in, in Alabama, three uh, distinct Jewish communities. You have, uh, of course, the, the German Jews that came uh, in the, the early and mid-19th century. They uh, were of the Reformed tradition. Then uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you had Eastern European Jews that, uh, that immigrated. Uh, and in Montgomery, in the early 20th century, you had a Sephardic uh, group that, uh, that that migrated here, and they were they, they talk about rifts. They, there were tremendous differences, cultural differences, religious differences, uh, certainly economic differences. The older German Jews had been much more established, much more. Uh, a successful in uh, business and politics and society. Uh, and, you know, I think they, uh, I think they were embarrassed in some ways by uh, these, these newcomers, the, the Eastern European Jews that didn't assimilate the way that the reformed Jews had that, you know, clung to the, the Jewish traditions and, uh, attempted to keep kosher, which was virtually impossible uh, in small towns uh, at that point. Uh, and so, so that's, that was the rift that, that took place. Now, by the time you get to the 1930s, you're, you're two or three generations in, but there's still profound differences, cultural differences here that, you know, if you talk to, to some of the uh, some of the members of the Jewish community, especially the older members uh, uh, of these Jewish communities, uh, they'll admit they're, they're still there, even though after World War II, there was a lot of intermarriage that took place between uh, the, the sub-communities. Uh, but uh, as, as they'll be happy to tell you, they, you know, those risks are still there. Right. And, and the rifts, you know, make it all the more remarkable that they put aside their differences to work together during the 1930s and 1940s. Is that right? That, that's correct. They did. In, in fact, now, now they fought uh, a great deal. They, they battled with each other a great deal, especially over the issue of Zionism. But when it came to aiding and, and attempting to rescue the, uh, the persecuted Jews from, uh, from the Nazis, then uh, they put aside their differences and worked together and, and I think that was 
uh, that, that spoke volumes about uh, what they cared about and, and, and how they saw uh, themselves and their role. Mm-hmm. You know, then, just like now, uh, you know, Jews were a minority. So in order to, you know, operate at, you know, sort of levels of power, they needed to get help from the wider community, from non-Jews. How did they go about thinking about how to do that? You know, this is this is something that, you know, if you look at Alabama's Jews during the 1930s and 40s, they were less than 1% of the population. Yet they wielded enormous influence, much uh much larger than their numbers would suggest. Uh, they, they were integrated into the economic uh, fabric of, of the communities, uh, not just as merchants, but uh, in, in banking and finance and real estate. Uh, they belonged to almost all of the civic organizations. In fact, they're in, in Montgomery, uh, in Mobile, for instance, you had uh, Jews uh, that were elected mayor, uh, elected in, in high public office. Now, you know, it, that being said, they also could not join the country club. And so there were social exclusions, but they were very influential civically uh, and uh, economically uh, in these communities. And it, it, it generally the leaders came from the reform community. Uh, that's not to say that Eastern European Jews weren't influential, but they didn't wield that influence that reformed Jews, uh, had. So, and one of the things that I think is interesting is that there was enormous support for Jewish endeavors on the part of the Gentile community. Uh, and, and, and of course that there's reasons for that, but, uh, just to give you some examples, um, in 1933, when Hitler came to power in, in, in April, when uh, the uh, anti-Semitic persecutions began, you start to see uh, politicians, uh, Gentile politicians prompted by their Jewish constituents, begin to pass uh, resolutions. Now, this has no effect on what's going on in Germany, uh, but at least they're making their voices known in protest. And you see this throughout the 1930s uh, and the 1940s. Right. And that sort of, you know, adds to what you said before, that there was a level of awareness about what was going on that I don't think we, 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 we realize. No, no. It, it, in fact, they knew exactly what was going on. In fact, the Jewish community, more so than, than anyone else, was, was keenly tuned in to the events in Europe. You know, it, so many had family there and were interested in what was happening to uh, uh, to the Jews there, and uh, but also the newspapers. And this is something that uh, I think is is missed in some cases. The newspapers covered this. You know, in 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 the research I did in my graduate studies, and and later I looked at at, at every newspaper in Alabama from uh, the 1930s and uh, you know, to the end of World War II. And certainly the daily newspapers covered the events in Europe in depth. Now, it may not have been on the front page, uh, but the editorial pages, you know, the voice of the newspaper uh, gave it uh, a prominence that I think we overlooked. So people knew what was going on. Uh, Now, whether or not when you talk about the, uh, uh, the exterminations, uh, in, in, uh, 42, 43, 44, 
whether or not they appreciated or, or perhaps grasped the enormity of that, that, that's another question. But they knew what was happening. I want to come back to the media in, in a minute, but uh, first I just want to ask, you know, you talk in the introduction about a cognitive dissonance that yes. uh, some, of the, some of the Southern Jews felt. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that was? And, you know, do you think that your your original research about African-Americans and race sort of helped you pick up on some of that? Yes, it, it absolutely did. Uh, you know, one of the things that I was looking at originally was, um, and, it, and it wasn't focused on the Jews, it was focused on the larger white community in Alabama and how they responded initially to Nazism and Nazi racism, its claims of Aryan supremacy, its discrimination against uh, Jews and other uh, uh, minorities. Interestingly, you know, white Southerners, at least from what I've looked at, I know in Alabama and I've, I've looked in, in some, some of the other uh, newspapers and, and states, that white Southerners condemned Nazism, condemned Hitler, condemned the treatment of these minorities from the very beginning. Uh, now, they were more critical of Nazi aggression, its, its anti-democratic tendencies, its brutality, rather than specifically its, its racism, but that was part of it. So they're condemning the Nazis, they're condemning Hitler for the treatment of their minorities, yet when you look at Jim Crow society in the 1930s, there's not a lot of difference between what was going on in Germany uh, and what was going on in the American South. And if you look at, at the Nazi racial thought and you look at Southern racial thought, it's, it, 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 it is eerily similar here. And so when I talk about cognitive dissonance, white Southerners don't see that. They don't see the similarities. They condemn Hitler. They condemn the Nazis. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, that's not us. Uh, that, that's extremist groups like the Ku Klux Klan, uh, not looking at the type of society they've created. And the point I made in the book is that that extended to Jews as well. Uh, now, there may be a number of reasons why Southern Jews embraced white supremacy. I, I, I'm not sure you can say any were virulent segregationist or racist, but they certainly didn't speak out. And I think most of them didn't, weren't in the position to speak out or didn't feel comfortable speaking out, given the fact that, well, that would put a target on their back. Uh, mm -hmm. But looking at some of the private papers, some of the letters, some of the, the, the correspondence, uh, they're not talking about this privately either. I mean, it, it's understandable they're not talking about it publicly, but they're not talking about it privately either. So that's when I say the, the cognitive business. They don't recognize these similarities. And I don't think uh, Southern Jews really recognized or at least admitted these similarities. I want to talk about I want to talk about Chapter Two, uh, which deals with the refugee crisis. Yes. So. After you, you know, in chapter one, you go through how Jews initially responded to Nazi persecution and, you know, sort of the early years of the rise of Hitler. Um, tell us very briefly, very briefly about the NCC and the NRS. 
So the NCC, the National Coordinating Committee for the Refugees from Germany, uh, was created. This was a, really a, a it came from New York, and all the national Jewish organizations were based in New York. But it was attempting to, to aid those refugees that were able to get out of Germany. Uh, the NRS, the National uh, Refugee Service, uh, emerged out of the NCC. So they're really the, the same organization. Uh, but the, the NRS uh, was focused specifically on refugees. And so they're the ones that attempted to resettle refugees throughout the United States. Uh, those that came into the U.S. generally came into New York. And so, you know, Jewish groups in New York were worried about, uh, you know, this, this, this influx of large numbers of, uh, of refugees because they, they really didn't want to leave. Um, and they were worried about a number of issues. First of all, overtaxing the, uh, the Jewish uh, support services in New York, uh, creating Jewish ghettos, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism. And so they thought the best way to, to handle this influx is to settle Jews throughout the country into smaller communities. And so the NRS sent representatives to various communities throughout, I think it was over 900 different communities throughout the United States, trying to organize support for resettlement, you know, getting these communities to, uh, to agree to accept refugees uh, to resettle. And in Alabama, um, in Birmingham, in uh, Mobile, Montgomery, Selma, uh, places in the north and the west, uh, they were willing to do that. And it's a it, number of, this is really where you see uh, this rift being put aside uh, to aid, uh, not just to donate and to work for, for the, 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 the relief of those in Europe, but also to help support those who arrive. We, t- we touched on it earlier, but, um, you know, as, as, as close as the different communities came together and worked together, Zionism seemed to be an issue where the rifts remained. Uh, why was that? Oh, this, in fact, that was, that was the cause of the largest rift, is, is the issue of Zionism, uh, the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. Uh, you know, it's one of the interesting things, if you, uh, if you look at the Jewish community today, one of the, one of the key things is support for Israel. And even in the, even in the Reformed congregations, uh, there is there is a lot of uh, of Hebrew in the services, uh, emphasis on on Israel on the Jewish state, and when I began the research, I was I was amazed to find that there was tremendous animosity towards Zionism from the Reformed community. You know, they viewed assimilation uh, as as the key to success, and they were frankly afraid that if they uh, voice support for another state, they would be accused of dual loyalty. You know, who are they uh, loyal to, the United States uh, or to this Jewish state? Now, where Eastern European Jews were generally the, the backbone uh, of the Zionist movements uh, throughout uh, throughout Alabama, uh, Birmingham, Montgomery, Mobile, 
uh, that's generally the largest populations, and that's where the Zionist organizations reside. Uh, but uh, this caused, I think, the greatest uh, uh, discord between these communities is is over the Jewish state. You know, I interviewed uh, a number of older members of the community when I was, was doing this. There was one gentleman. He was, I think he was 95 when I interviewed him. And so he had, you know, he was, he was well aware of what was going on in, in the twenties and the thirties and the forties. And, uh, but very much a supporter, uh, and very much a, 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 a member of that traditional reform movement that, you know, he, he wanted nothing to do at all with, with Israel. Uh, and, and that was, I would say common, but, but it was, you know, it, it was often that I would run into that. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's one of the things that I think drove the wedge or kept that, that, that chasm between these two uh, groups for so long. Mm-hmm. In Chapter 4, you look at the Alabama press. Um, we touched a little bit on this earlier, but can you tell us briefly, what was the mainstream Alabama press's approach and what was the black press's approach to Nazism? It seems like they were they were slightly different the way they were treated. Oh, very much so. Uh, if you look at the the, the white press, for instance, uh, of course they condemn Nazism, but uh, in dealing with the racial issues, this is really where the differences came in. Is that uh, now there was there was no white uh, journalist, no white editor, no white newspaper that called for an end to segregation that called for an end to, to Jim Crow, um, you know, but they would, in essence, the white press, basically like the white population, would blame the racial violence in the South on those extremist elements. Uh, one of the cartoons I've included in my book was uh, basically uh, a hooded Klansman with a, a, a swastika uh, on, his, uh, on his chest. And that's that's how they portrayed it. Is that you know the, the lynchings, uh, the beatings, the uh, you know really the violence was not part of good white Southern society. That's that's the extremist. On the other hand, African Americans uh, pointed out this hypocrisy. Yeah, they were saying no, this is it's endemic to Jim Crow. You can't just point to the Klan when. Uh, you know, you're condemning the Jew, uh, the, the Nazis for treating the Jews as second-class citizens, and they'll point out the same way that they're treated as second-class citizens in the South. So, uh, tremendous differences. Now, the one thing that uh, that the black press does when they're talking about racism and discrimination and violence, they use the term Hitlerism uh, or Nazism to describe this this Southern racial violence. So. You know they they recognize you know the the you know the similarities here, and so they'll use those terms. You know one of the things when they uh, and they also use terms that resonate with their readers when they were describing the uh, uh, the extermination camps after the the liberation of uh, of Auschwitz and the news filtered back, uh, they began to use terms uh, like. You know the, the the Jewish victims being lynched, 
or segregated concentration camps. So things that their readers would certainly uh, understand. I want to ask you about two two important figures in the book um, because you know these, these are not these are probably not household names, but. Um, there are two clergymen, or one clergyman and one former clergyman, maybe. Um, one is Rabbi Milton Grafman, who's a very fascinating character, and the other is um, the Catholic priest uh, Arthur Terminiello. Terminiello. Um, so brief- yeah. yeah, tell us briefly. Tell us briefly about those. Well, Milton Grafman, he uh, he basically he served uh, Temple Emmanuel in Birmingham from 1941. He got there the day uh, the day after Pearl Harbor. Uh, he uh, was uh, uh, installed as rabbi. He retired in officially retired in 1975, but he lived another 20 years and was extremely active in the Birmingham community. So, you know, from 19 the end of 1941, really to 1995 when he passed away, uh, he was a dominant figure. Uh, for uh, you know, for many Jews in Birmingham, or, and certainly for uh, the Gentile population, you know, because they looked to the Reform rabbis really as the spokesman for for the Jewish community. So he was a he he really was a giant in in uh, uh, in, in Birmingham and and, and Alabama uh, in regard to uh, to Judaism. Uh, but he, uh, you know, what's interesting? I, I wrote a little piece in. Uh, about about Grafman, he was installed um, in forty one. He had followed a long serving rabbi, uh, Rabbi Newfield, who had been in Birmingham from I think eighteen ninety five until he died in nineteen forty. Uh, Newfield was very much of the reform tradition. He uh, he was not a supporter of Zionism. Uh, he was not an anti-Zionist, but he wasn't a supporter of Zionism. He was, uh, in, in essence, a very moderate figure, but a very revered figure, uh, being there as long as he was, some 45 years. And by the end of 41, here comes this young firebrand, uh, Milton Grafman, who is outspoken and who is uh, an ardent Zionist. And so it, there was a lot of controversy in Temple Emanuel over his support for Zionism. He was very outspoken. Uh, he was not afraid to say what was on his mind. In fact, he often spoke his mind from the pulpit. Uh, that caused a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a lot of uh, uh, uneasiness and maybe discomfort uh, among his congregants. Uh, in fact, there led to a falling out. I, I wrote about this in the book, uh, a falling out uh, with some of his congregants over the issue of Zionism. Uh, so he, uh, he, he was very outspoken, did a lot to, uh, to spearhead this Zionist movement. And he, was not, he was not there early on. I mean, the, the, the backbone of the Zionist movement, Birmingham, was the Eastern European Jews. But Grafman, with his position as a reformed, Rabbi uh, was well positioned uh, to take Zionism to the larger Gentile community, or at least uh, those those aspects that it could support. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Father T- Arthur Terminello. Now that that is a character. 
Um, he was in the mold of Father Cogman. Uh, in fact, he was often called the Father Cogman of the South. Now, uh, Father Cogman, as, as many of you know, uh, was an anti-Semitic priest. They call the, the radio priest who uh, blasted out anti-Semitic uh, uh, speeches. He was not a fan of the New Deal, not a fan of, uh, of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And Arthur Terminello was, in essence, our version of Father Coughlin here in Alabama. Uh, he, had, uh, it, he had a number of newspapers that he ran. Uh, Father Coughlin had a newspaper called Social Justice. Well, Arthur Terminello here in Alabama had a newspaper called Rural Justice. Uh, after that was stopped, he, uh, and he moved around from, from parish to parish to parish because he kept getting into trouble with uh, basically his, uh, his superiors uh, until in 1944 uh, he had gone too far. He was, in fact, he had a radio program like Father Cogman. Uh, and after, in essence, uh, slamming, the, slamming Roosevelt and, and basically saying that Roosevelt had tricked us into war, had lied us into war, uh, he was defrocked uh, by the, the bishop in Mobile, Tulip. And uh, then he began a speaking tour with uh, Gerald L.K. Smith, the, the leading anti-Semite in the U.S. Uh, at the time. And uh, he began going on speaking tours uh, all, over the, all over the country, speaking with Smith and a number of other anti-Semites. Uh, so he was, uh, he was really a, a, uh, a very virulent uh, anti-Semite uh, here in Alabama. Yeah, there are a number of uh, colorful characters in the book. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank the book you for is having in, me. The book is In the Shadow of Hitler, Alabama's Jews, the Second World War, and the Holocaust, published in 2014 by the University of Alabama Press. The author is Dan Puckett. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.